I am going to talk at some length about Egypt, because it has very many remarkable features and has produced more monuments which beg a description than anywhere else in the world. Herodotus. Welcome to this week's episode of Warfare, Advancement, and Revisionism. My name is Preston Floyd, and as always, I am your host. I would like to thank you all for tuning in this week, and if you this is your first time, thank you for joining us. And if you've listened to prior episodes, thank you for continuing to listen. Um, the last episode was very well received, despite it being shorter on actual like content. Um, it's already it, it's December the 11th, and this is already my most listened to month, despite only releasing one episode uh, in that period. Um, so I'd like to thank everyone who has shared episodes or, you know, listened regularly to get it boosted up uh, whatever algorithms the um, the sites I upload to use. So I'd like to thank everyone. And uh, actually, I think if um, even if it's only, you know, back to normal numbers, I actually might break a thousand downloads before the end of the year, which is not technically our one year episode. But uh, you kind of get where I'm going with this. So just thank you, everyone, uh, and I hope you continue to listen and enjoy. Uh, but for now, though, we're going to be getting into the meat of this week's episode, and that's going to be talking about the groups who are traveling between and living along the Nile to the Delta and the neighboring Levant. And this episode will serve as a, a final bridge between Africa and Asia as we close out on one and begin to move into the other. Um, these groups are going to be very important to the establishment of Egyptian civilization, and we're going to see the seeds for that be planted in this episode, and somewhat maybe is next week as well. Um, we'll kind of dive into that a little bit more later. So let's review our timeline uh, at the start of where we are covering for this season, uh, at 8,000 BC, there are around three to four material cultures that have been identified or linked to a number of sites in the regions I've mentioned. And there are a few sites that aren't necessarily linked to a specific or single culture. Um, each of these sites sees a number of things that make them unique or special. And as we kind of travel down the timeline toward 6000 BC, uh, we see some of these sites abandoned, some sites see radical changes or developments, and some see a kind of uh, synthesis with neighboring cultures or new cultures uh, take over. Uh, so at the start of our time frame, we should highlight the Kadan, who I mentioned briefly in the episode discussing this area at 10,000 BC. Now this culture has already broken up and ended a thousand years ago at 9,000 BC. Um, they occupied several small sites in what is today the very south of Egypt or as it may historically be referred to as Upper Egypt. Uh, and it's upper because it is upstream but it's also I found out uh, referred to Upper Egypt is because the elevation in that area is higher as well. Uh, and Lower Egypt, of course, is uh, at a lower sea level. So uh, that's true for both of those descriptions. Uh, now, the area between the first and second cataracts of the Nile 
And a cataract is kind of like a, a group of uh, rocks or a rockly isle, kind of like islands or islets or boulders that create like white water rapids. And also um, waterfalls can be considered cataracts as well. Uh, the cataracts on the Nile are very small considering how big the river is. And none of these cataracts are what you would what you would consider a true waterfall. Um, the term comes from the Greek katero, uh, which translates as uh, to fall apart or fall down. And uh, I apologize to any Greek listeners I may have. Uh, I, I know I don't pronounce it very well. Um, uh, there is evidence that they saw a lot of conflict within their own group or within neighboring groups. Um, they have found um, a gravesite or cemetery called Jebel Sahaba, uh, which means Mountain of the Companions. Uh, this was thought to kind of have been a battlefield with most of the um, 61 remains found bearing some type of wound from uh, spears, clubs, or arrows. Uh, but I think some more recent ex examination suggested that um, most of those berries had had um, had had time to heal these wounds to some extent after receiving them uh, in some cases uh, they had lived for years after the fact um, now this as well as finding others with no visible injuries you know kind of suggests that this was just a a specific cemetery for a family or extended family group um, Either way, uh, there is evidence of ritual burials at this site and other Kadan locations. Um, these people had relied on fishing, hunting, and of course harvesting wild grasses to grind for flour and the like. Um, these people had invented sickles to help with this process on their own. However, uh, when they broke down, this tool disappears from the archaeological record in this area, and it was lost and, uh, of course, would be redeveloped or reintroduced by a different group later. Um, no seeds have been found uh, in these locations that had you know, been stored or saved, uh, so that shows that they weren't experimenting with planting. Um, they may have gotten to that point, um, but for whatever reason, when they uh, uh, broke apart, they they just um, something caused them to break apart before they got to that point in their develop in their development. Uh, now, why they abandoned the area isn't clear, uh, but it it probably has to do that at the time they were occupying that region of the Nile, um, it had a much higher water level. And then it's possible that a drop in that water level kind of eliminated a lot of the wild grasses they harvested. Uh, so if um, this water level never dropped, it's possible this location and people might have developed their own agriculture industry ahead of or, you know, at the same time as the cultures of the Fertile Crescent. Uh, instead, um, the kind of the African uh, locations where... Um, agriculture and horticulture are first practices are uh, either, of course, the Horn of Africa or West Africa. So they're kind of carrying on uh, their, the, I guess, the local African uh, crops, whereas uh, later, as we'll get to, the crops planted along the Nile are mostly from the Middle East. Um, now, as far as I can 
been able to see no single dominant material culture appears in this same area again. Um, most new cultures are to the north, past the first cataract, up to the delta or in the delta and to the east. Uh, now that is not to say people were not living in the region, but it is not a locus for a material culture or sites. Um, but there is a site that forms to the west of this area, uh, out in what is now a, mostly a desert, a rocky desert, and that is Napta Playa. Now this place has been used uh, in use by humans since at least 9000 BC, uh, though there's kind of a dry period, um, possibly the same one that caused um, the Kadan to break apart, uh, saw that it was abandoned until around, I think, 7500 BC uh, was what I had written down, but I don't see in my notes. But yeah, 7500 BC. So uh, when it becomes, uh, at, at that point, uh, once the dry period kind of relents a little, it becomes a much more used location. Now, um, I know I talked about it briefly in that last uh, episode, or the episode, I think, before the last. Um, Napta Playa is located in kind of an internal drainage basin. Um, while the slow process of desertification of the Sahara had begun, this location was retaining kind of the last couple of thousand years of rainwater or maybe even snow that had melted from like nearby mountains. Uh, and it had fallen into the region, and that region is not part of a larger water system. It didn't feed into, back into the Nile or any of the other neighboring water sources. <clears throat> now, this means when rains came, uh, that this might have been a swamp-like or kind of a seasonal oasis-like site. Uh, these were probably Nilo-Saharan speakers, or possibly a mix of Nilo-Saharan and uh, Afro-Asiatic-speaking groups. Um, there is evidence of them hunting wild cattle, Barbary sheep, uh, while eating, again, wild grass, grain, uh, fruits, sorghum, and, you know, tubers similar to uh, kind of yams or potatoes. Um, they also had ceramic pottery that they were either creating on their own or trading with groups to their west how we talked about in those west african episodes uh, they began to make huts in very neatly ordered rows and starting around 500 years or a little later after this site becomes important again they begin to import either through trade or raids domesticated goats and sheep that they begin to raise from groups um uh, yes, they, I'm sorry, they, they're raiding or trading uh, domesticated goats and sheep um, from groups to their north and east, and they begin to raise them on their own. So they take over as kind of these uh, pastoralists or early pastoralists. Uh, the ordered huts remained in this location, but the sizes of the hearths got larger, meaning that the population probably was increasing. Uh, this same time frame saw large year-round wells dug in the area, probably to divide water for the increased human population, and of course the even more rapidly increasing animal herds um, 
that less and less regular rain wasn't providing for. So uh, these wells are very important. And of course, they're, they're learning to make wells if, um, if they haven't already known that. Uh, though the site is still uh, never occupied year-round. Um, it's probably a pretty vital transit point uh, in periods when it wasn't occupied. And either at the end of our time frame of 6,000 BC or so, um, or maybe a little later, uh, there is evidence of kind of a cultic worship of cows or a cow god or goddess. Um, cattle remains were buried in clay-lined mounds or a tumuli after being richly slaughtered and eaten. Um, there are those that suggest that this is the origin of the Egyptian goddess Hathor due to kind of the similarity to her oldest temple layouts and the way these mounds were organized. Um, I, I do think this is a, you know, a very interesting and somewhat convincing argument. Um, at the very least, I think this is the origin point for some of her myths that may have been combined with a more human goddess later. Um, we're going to dive into this topic much deeper when we get to early Egyptian mythology. Um, there are, of course, human burials at this site in a separate area from the cows that can be dated all through the site's use. Um, so, uh, also, as around this time frame or a little after, uh, the people using the site begin to assemble a group of stones in a stone circle with several layered out in the middle. Uh, the ring is made up of kind of mismatched stones laid down on their sides or long ways, while the six or so central stones are larger and stood upright and compacted into the earth. Um, what this is meant to be or uh, is is a matter of you know a lot of debate. Uh, there are those that think it is a rough calendar that was meant to align with where the sun would rise during the summer solstice. Uh, this would have been followed by a rainy season, which would be vital to living in the area. Uh, there is also the theory that it was meant to be an early mirror to the three stars of Orion's belt. Um, they would have been fairly closely aligned sometime between 6400 and 4900 BC. Um, the primary star of Orion's belt, Sirius, was used to mark the Egyptian New Year in later times. Uh, those stars are also associated with several different gods at different points of Egyptian history. Asa, Sothis, Osiris, and Isis, and others. Um, but again, more on that later. Though this may not have been constructed until around 5000 BC, which means the alignment may not have been happening if it was constructed at a later date. Um, it is also possible that the layout was reconstructed incorrectly or that the topography of the land has radically changed. Um, unfortunately, the exact reason for this uh structure and what it was used for will probably not ever be figured out. Um, as there's, I mean, there's no symbolic carvings or paintings on the rocks used for this. So it seems odd to say, but it was maybe just a simple, if massive, structure meant to keep track of what was most vital, vital to the people using the site, that being time and the weather. 
Um, a few researchers that I read kind of critiquing the serious theory said, um, looking at the calendar circle and contradicting the serious alignment theory concluded that they, um, the symbolism embedded, and this is a quote, the symbolism embedded in the archaeological record of Naptoplaya in the 5th millennium BC is very basic, focused on issues of major practical importance to the nomads. Cattle, water, death, earth, sun, and stars. End quote. Uh, and that was done by uh, Malville Child et al. Um, it was done, I think, in a paper for um, Harvard. Um, you can find it online fairly easily. I think if you Google Marvel Child and Noptoplia, it'll it'll come up pretty easily. Now, whatever the exact case, um, the available evidence shows that Noptoplia served as an important meeting point for social, material, and religious matters, even if the religion was limited to the cattle cult. For the people using this site, and it will remain in use to some extent in the, until the region sees uh, you know, full desertification, though obviously in more and more diminished capacity as time goes on. And that kind of ends the kind of focus of the lower Egypt, or I'm sorry, upper Egypt, upper Egypt. <laughs> I'm doing what a lot of people do there, forgive me. Now, the next group we need to discuss are the Harathian culture. Um, this is a lower Egyptian-focused uh, um, area. Uh, this group is believed to have emerged somewhere between the Fayum and the Sinai Peninsula. The Fayum is a location to the southwest of the Nile Delta. Um, today, this is kind of a wetland oasis around a small... Um, saltwater lake that is called Birket Karan, or Karun, uh, which is Arabic for the Lake of Karun, referencing, uh, of course, a biblical Quranic figure that we'll talk about later. <laughs> uh, those familiar with the English version of the Bible may recognize his name as Korah, or Cori, uh, a first cousin of Moses and Aaron. Um, now, at our time frame, though, the lake is much larger and was fresh water. Uh, the surrounding uh, wetlands were also much bigger. Um, it was referred to the Egyptians by a number of names. Usually, though, it was just called the lake. Or, in Egyptian, it would be something like Payum. Uh, P-A-Y-U-M. Uh, now, when Coptic becomes the primary language, it was pronounced closer to Peum or Pium, uh, which was became the uh, Arabic Fayum. The Greeks and Romans referred to the area and to the body of water as Lake Maris. This came from the Egyptian Merwer, which meant Great Canal, which referred to a canal project begun by the pharaoh Amenemhet III to attempt to feed more water to the area to help prevent the land uh, from becoming further desert, desertified or desertification, and, it, and to help the lake um, resist salinification. Uh, thus, some Greek and Roman sources refer to Amenemhet III as Mares, uh, but again, more on him and that 
project and everything else related to that later. Um, but this does serve as kind of an interesting example of how ancient place names and hydronyms persist over time, even as they're changing slightly or even a little bit more than slightly. It also illustrates that what a word refers to can change over time as well, uh, um, even if the usage doesn't necessarily consciously change. But um, again, I'm, I'm sorry I'm digressing, but I just thought that was kind of a little interesting factoid. Uh, and again, we're going to go over all this in more detail much later. Now, the Harafian are also in the process of breaking up or undergoing a, a massive cultural shift at the start of our timeline. Uh, these people are closely associated with the Nautufian culture, which I mentioned in our last episode on the Levant. Uh, they were the dominant culture in the Levant between 13,000 BC and 9500 BC. Uh, they have also been tied to early examples and experiments of sedentary or semi-sedentary living in that region. Um, different periods would see them be more mobile than others. Um, the current prevailing theory is that when the Natufian culture was splitting apart or as various Natufian groups were migrating away from their you know, traditional Levantine heartland due to environmental or population pressures, one of these groups mixed with hunter-gatherer groups that had lived along the Lower Nile to the Delta and the Sinai Peninsula. Um, this eventually led to the Harafian culture, whose sites and artifacts are dated between 8800 and 8000 BC. Uh, they have a large number of artifacts which are nearly identical to Natufian designs, um, except for their arrowheads. Their arrowheads had a unique design. Uh, so that's kind of why it's very, you know, now the more popular theory is that they're mixing with these hunter-gatherers who were much more adept at this lifestyle, at least in this region. Um, it is the Natufian, um, oh, also they did share uh, the Natufian affinity with digging down, uh, like semi-subterranean camps or housing. Um, you know, they would kind of make a little pit and then make their foundations like a little deeper under the ground, presumably to help stay cool. Um, now, it is the Natufian breakup or breakdown that is um, likely to have spread herding and the proto-Semitic language throughout the Arabian coast, and then that sees um, this emerging combined Harafian precursor culture um, spread uh, agriculture and herding and the proto-archaic Egyptian language in the Nile Delta uh, and then the rest of northern Egypt. Uh, and uh, yes, Egyptian and uh, Semitic are both Afro-Asiatic languages, uh, so they are the, uh, the opposite, I guess, uh, another branch, another early branch uh, similar to Omotic or Cushitic. Oh, and that reminds me, I did have a question about what the big uh, Cushitic languages are today. Um, there are several, but the two largest are uh, Oromo, that's O-R-O-M-O, -O, I believe, and Somalian. Both are um, the biggest Cushitic uh, branches in terms of speakers. Um, Oromo is uh, mostly spoken in Ethiopia, uh, and then Somali, of course, being 
spoken in Somalia, though they do have um, groups that speak them outside of those uh, countries today. Uh, so, uh, sorry, give me back on my notes here. Um, okay, due to the nature of the environment in that area, artifacts, and that, by that area I mean the Nile Delta, um, artifacts of wood and kind of similar materials can be extremely hard to find. This area is damp and isn't conducive to preservation. And this is true even in later er er eras. For example, a lot of Egyptian writing recorded on papyri has only been recovered in sites to the south or further away from the Nile. Uh, and of course, this will make information on sometimes and people harder to come by, most frustratingly. Um, so it's possible the Harafian were around a little before or a little after uh, 8800 to 8000 BC. Uh, but that cannot be firmly established. So, uh, though they can know, um, though there cannot be any doubt that they contribute massively to a revolutionary step in human development in uh, this region and also maybe a little bit out of it as well. Um, now, by the end of our time frame at 6000 BC, we see an, another new culture firmly emerge in the area, specifically around the Fayum Oasis, uh, which is where agriculture was first practiced in Egypt. Now slowly, over the course of our time frame for this, uh, for this season, the Sahara is going through desertification, and the Harafian and other Levantine groups are coming in and mixing with the native hunter-gatherers. Uh, and this wouldn't be hard for them. They were living a very similar lifestyle though they did have herds and crops for growing they still probably be just using these to supplement their wild food sources at this point in time but as the 8000s kind of give way to the 7000s and then that gives way to the 6000s these domesticated crops and animals are becoming more and more productive and thus more and more vital to an ever-increasing population now, the Nile is extremely conductive to, you know, this type of uh, sedentary agriculture and lifestyle. Uh, these larger groups then begin to settle in areas permanently. Uh, these settlements are small at first, but they will eventually grow to become villages, then towns, and finally cities. Um, I'm going to do a specific episode on how these settlements formed and developed at some point. Um, though the settlements showing up now are a while away from becoming cities. Um, this culture is referred to as the Fayum A. Now, and as you can tell from the name, most of this culture's sites are located in and around the Fayum. It emerges as, it emerges as our timeline ends, so we are going to be talking about them again in our next episodes of this area. Now, um, we don't have any ritual sites or location that hint at an early form of Egyptian religion, uh, but the Fayum becomes the primary home and temple of Sobek. Uh, and now he is a crocodile or a human headed or a crocodile headed humanoid god, and he eventually will preside over 
a number of spheres, but one of his most important and probably oldest functions was his role in protecting humans from the dangers of the Nile, um, which the Nile is so important to their lifestyle, they can't live without it, but it does have you know inherent dangers that cannot just be uh, removed or wished away. So they, they pray to him to kind of help protect and intercede um, on, uh, on their behalf. Um, the city this temple was housed in had many names over its history, but the oldest Egyptian name that I could you know, firmly establish was Shedet. But the Greeks would refer to it as uh, Crocodilopolis, which literally means Crocodile City. Um, of course, we're going to dive into Sobek uh, in more in future episodes. For now, though, I think that's probably a good place to to call it for this uh, for this time. Um, I feel like this has been pretty balanced for you know this area and for this time frame. We have examined what will become Upper and what will become Lower Egypt. We will see that um, we see that they are different and distinct from each other, but we're also able to see different aspects they're going to contribute to um, their future kind of shared civilization. Um, we have also seen that they are that there are connections between these regions and their neighboring ones. Neither is isolated and both are going to continue to be influenced by and influence these neighboring area, uh, areas even as they're influencing and merging with each other. Um, we've already covered the African neighbors, um, but now, though, we will be focusing on the Asian ones and then spreading from there. As for when we will return to Africa, I'm still thinking over how far, I guess, the next season, if you will, should cover. But I'm leaning toward going from 6,000 to 5,000 or maybe like... Um, 6,000 to 4,500, um, though obviously that's still a ways off. Um, I'm currently working on outlines for the last couple of episodes in Asia right now, and then um, of course we'll be moving on to Europe and then the Americas. Uh, and of course that's not even to mention the ne next set of domestication episodes and a general city development episode. Um, and I've also got a, uh, another kind of um, special episode planned I, I need to schedule with uh, uh, a guest for that, but um, I am working on it. Um, so if you have any questions about this or you know anything that we've kind of covered recently or even the entirety of the episode, um, we have a lot of new listeners uh, so far this month, so please do feel free to reach out. Um, you can reach me via email at waradrevpod at gmail.com or you can reach me on uh, Twitter. Uh, my direct messages are open and I'll include the link to our Twitter account in the episode description. Um, yeah, and uh, also I do have a YouTube channel where I have uploaded a few episodes. Um, I have been very slack the last couple of weeks putting some of those backlog up. Um, I'm going to try to get one or two or up this week, though um, work has been very busy. Uh, everyone's trying to get everything taken care of before the Christmas holiday. Um, 
Worst case, uh, I'll just be uploading a lot during that break. I, our office will be closed for a few days, so I'll have some time to sit down and pull some audio and put them over the episode or the uh, the podcast's um, uh, title page. So I hope you will listen wherever you have time to do so. Uh, thank you all. I hope you have a good rest of your day and a safe week ahead. Thank you and goodbye.